0: Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney.
1: And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Paul, I've got to make another World Cup commentary here because it's just an absolutely incredible World Cup with the semifinals coming up on Wednesday and Thursday and the finals coming up on Sunday. And we've got the final four. We got Argentina, we got morocco we have croatia and we have france and the coolest part is i was in dubai for the quarterfinals and the energy there was absolutely insane dubai actually sets up these little like watching zones all over the city with big screens and like drinks and stuff and everyone can just come and it's not like a building that you go into it's just like in the middle of these areas and like groups of people gather together and It was pretty cool. The energy was amazing.
0: That's great. Yeah, no, it's uh, Nail Biters on Saturday. It was like two of the most exciting semifinal games I think I've ever seen. And I think it was as expected. France won. I guess England had a shot to send it to penalty kicks or extra time. Sorry. But uh, yeah, very exciting. They played well. I mean, they played well. England played well. Yeah. And Morocco, defensive juggernaut. Good for that.
1: I would like to see Morocco make it to the final, even though I'm a big France fan, but it would be cool to see Morocco make it to the final, ideally with Argentina, and then have Morocco win the whole thing. Because uh, I was a little bummed out that Netherlands lost. A hard-fought battle, but exciting nonetheless. I'd be curious to know what the viewership of this World Cup's been once like, final numbers are out after the finals.
0: We'll report on that next episode. Awesome. So, happy holidays, everyone. It's that holiday party season, Mesh. I guess everyone knows you are in Pakistan. You were just in Dubai. So we're doing a especially remote recording this week. Yeah. I'm glad you're able to make time <laughs> on that side of the world. And uh let's start it off with a little litigation update this week. Two stories. One involving a lawyer who is getting sentenced and pled guilty and was sentenced to 14 years. And another involving Johnny Depp and Amber Heard an update. So first update is Amber Heard, as we predicted in episode 17, is appealing the verdict, appealing the fact that she lost a trial in Virginia a couple months ago. She has new lawyers. Her lawyers are at Ballard's Bar. I think it's Jay Brown and David Axelrod. And they wrote basically a list of errors that they thought occurred at trial, which warrant the verdict being overturned on appeal. Right. Basically, she's saying that the case should have been tried in California, not Virginia, because that's where the injury occurred and that's where they both sort of live. And there would have been easier for her to get witnesses to testify on her behalf. They also said that the whole trial should never even have happened because Johnny Depp, a couple months earlier, lost his defamation case against the Sun newspaper in the UK, who basically said that, you know, he was a wife beater and and that J.K. Rowling should not cast him in Fantastic Beasts, and that led to a three-week trial where Johnny Depp lost as a plaintiff, so he didn't win in defamation. And Amber Heard's new lawyers are saying that, well, that should have decided the outcome of this case because it's proven that he abused her. And they have a couple other grounds. They actually, like I said, 16 complaints. One of them was that certain evidence should not have been admitted, certain text change should not have been admitted, and that amber heard because johnny depp is a famous person johnny depp was required to prove that amber heard acted with actual malice and in her lawyer's view johnny depp's team did not
1: do that so what do you think happens here i mean question why was it tried why was the trial in virginia versus california
0: because the washington post published the article and they're in dc so they probably have an office in virginia i see and if you're a plaintiff, you get to pick where to sue as long as the court has jurisdiction. And in this case, you could make an argument. It's an online article, but you can make an argument that The Washington Post has a connection to Virginia.
1: Got it. I mean, this makes sense, right? It's not like they wouldn't appeal. At least they're going to try to appeal. And what usually happens in this case? Like, How long does it take for—does Like, does a judge make a decision to then go back to trial?
0: That can happen. So we th- we discussed this a little bit before— So basically, in our system, you're not supposed to appeal just because you didn't like the verdict. Really, the grounds to appeal are tougher than that. So you have to sort of prove either a procedural error or an error at the judge incorrectly applied the law or that evidence was admitted that shouldn't have been. But it's got to be a sort of procedural or evidentiary or error of law that significantly impacts your case or that would have changed the result. And on appeal... It's a good question. So it doesn't mean that there's a new trial and and really there's no new evidence. So basically you have a panel of appellate judges that review the record at trial and the pleadings and the case and what the judge's instructions to the juries. And then they determine whether there were any errors, but it's not like they're going to hear new witnesses or see any new evidence or even have a jury. So this is purely kind of an examination of what happened at trial without new evidence. And they have to determine if there were any serious errors. And so I think it's tricky. I don't know that she has a great like to stand on. I mean, it is, it does seem valid that California may have been a better forum for her, but I don't know that she made that argument at trial. And I, I don't think that you can necessarily bring stuff up after the fact, if you didn't bring it up in trial. Second of all, their, their process argument, right, they're saying, hey, like, if you allow Johnny Depp to win, that's going to discourage other women from making similar complaints or making similar statements. And I just don't know if the public policy rationale is enough to overturn a verdict.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's your point earlier, like, if it wasn't brought up in trial, like, what? why are you bringing it up now? Is it because they basically reviewed everything and then they were just like, okay, well, this is areas where we're probably weak on. Let's try this angle now.
0: Well, you know, it really depends. I mean, in some cases, particularly in criminal cases, new evidence could come to light that the state suppressed or the prosecutors never turned over. And we talked about that in the Adnan Syed discussion a few weeks ago. Right. You know, sometimes there's Brady claims where the state has evidence that they should disclose and they don't. And that can be grounds for vacating a verdict and getting a new trial. I don't think there's anything like that happening here. To sort of summarize it, I think Amber Heard has new lawyers that are going to try to take an aggressive view and maybe make the best arguments they can that the verdict was wrong and that, you know, it's not necessarily the verdict was wrong. It was these errors caused the verdict to be wrong and she needs a new trial. But I'm not optimistic. I don't think
1: she's likely to win on appeal. It seems like a Hail Mary from their side.
0: Moving on to our next topic, Michael Avenatti, who, Mesh, I'm sure you're aware, he was very famous. He went up against Trump, represented Stormy Daniels. He was recently sentenced to 14 years. This is on the heel of a five-year sentence in New York. Now he has a 14-year sentence in California for fraud, tax evasion, embezzling money from his clients. I mean, this is not the kind of lawyer you want working for you. And it's really unfortunate because He was actually apparently a pretty talented lawyer and a very talented law student. He graduated top of his class at GW Law. Was working for O'Melveny Myers, which is a very powerful firm based in Los Angeles, but they have offices around the country. And he uh, he started his own firm. And apparently, you know, he was getting great results for his clients, winning a lot of cases, getting a lot of settlements. But at some point, maybe it was all along. I don't know. I don't know him personally. He just started going off the rails and acting like the law didn't apply to him and just doing incredibly shady, dishonest things. In the four cases that were sort of the reason for this 14 year sentence in California, he did some pretty shady stuff. In one, he basically won $2.75 million settlement for his client, had the money paid to his account. And then he told the client that the settlement called for payments and installments and that they would come very slowly over time. He ended up pocketing two and a half million of that and just paying the client like 225 K over time and then stopped paying.
1: That's so shady.
0: He also had another client who was apparently mentally ill, was injured and became mentally disabled. He won a $4 million settlement for that guy, Jeffrey Johnson. And he kept it all except he paid a few thousand dollars and paid the rent at his assisted living facility but otherwise kept the 4 million to pay his own expenses and and that's just an example he did other shady stuff like this like he negotiated a purchase agreement for shares of stock one of his clients sold 35 million dollars worth of stock he kept 8 million of that i think his fee was supposed to be 4 wow and then he claimed that he paid them and he sent them a false wire transfer receipt so that he was like no i already sent you 4 million and the whole thing is very very, very shady.
1: Well, I mean, it's so curious, like why someone is willing to take that type of risk, knowing the law, he knew that he was committing wire fraud. I mean, at some point, you got to assume that you're going to get someone's going to catch you and you're a lawyer. So you know what you're doing is wrong. I guess what drives people to do that? Like, I wonder if he had like a gambling problem or something.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I assume that there's got to be some mental disconnect where it's not like he's looking at this stuff rationally. Do you need a private jet? Do you need to embezzle $10 million from your clients and then not disclose income to the IRS and have like a $5 million tax evasion suit against you? I mean, the only real explanation is that he didn't care about doing the right thing. And in fact, had no moral compass at all. And just was like, I'm going to do whatever I can or whatever I want to and consequences be damned. Where this whole house of cards started to collapse was when he went up against Nike, he tried to extort Nike for $25 million, claiming that he had all this damning evidence he had. Apparently there's recordings of the calls he had with Nike's lawyers where he was just like berating them, screaming at them, saying that he will do billions of dollars of damage to their company's reputation and basically completely destroy or bankrupt the company because he had information that he alleges implicated sort of Nike and like a college recruiting scandal, similar to what Adidas got convicted for. And Nike wasn't having it. And they were like, listen, our record is clean and this is extortion and we'll stand up to you. So he actually lost that case when Nike complained about that extortion and was sentenced to two and a half years. Then he had another two years. So he's serving a five year sentence. And then once that ends, he's got another 14 year sentence in California. And in reality, the, the maximum that he was facing was 83 years in California. So some would say that the judge could have imposed a tougher sentence. But I think most people that are reading about this and most of the commentators are saying 14 years is actually a pretty tough sentence, especially because he did enter a plea deal. So he pled guilty to these charges in exchange for leniency and the government dropping a bunch of other charges against him.
1: So if someone pleads guilty, and you see this in movies all the time, right? They say plea guilty or you know admit guilt and then it's a better negotiation versus going to trial and try to prove your innocence. Like, why do people do one thing or the other? Is it to reduce the sentence, really? And, like, that's the only leverage that you have is that you're just going to make it easy on the state so they don't have to, like, put resources into put it going through trial. And so you just say, I'm guilty, sorry. And then they're like, all right, let's, uh, let's reduce your sentence.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit of an oversimplification. So really what it is, when you do a plea deal— and to be clear, I'm not a criminal lawyer, although I have friends that are a criminal lawyer. Most cases are resolved as a result of a plea deal. That means the two sides agree prior to trial for the defendant to plead guilty and some form of the charges, not all of them, in exchange for a more favorable result than possibly the worst case scenario would have been at trial. And so it's a little bit of a calculus, but basically the idea is you plead guilty to some subset of the charges in exchange for the time and resources. And then others are dismissed. And so for the ones that are dismissed, you're not sentenced for
1: those. Interesting to know how it works.
0: The system is just so constrained with resources. If, if every case went to trial, nothing would ever get done. Right. The vast majority of cases plead out and it's just a way to keep the system running. But sentencing is a separate area because sentencing is what the judge decides after you have a verdict.
1: Justice, in this case, I mean, this guy did some pretty bad things, so it seems like he deserves it.
0: Yeah, he'll be out in his 70s, assuming he doesn't get out earlier. There are probably other charges against him, and maybe more people will come out of the woodwork and sort of claim that he stole from them or or whatever, but it just seems like he really had no regard for the law. He'll, He'll never be a lawyer again, but he may be back in society in the next 20 years. But let's take a quick break and jump back with some good news for a change so mesh big story this week bg is freed. britney griner finally after 294 days in russia detained against her will in jail and then even in a penal colony at the start of her nine and a half year sentence and if you want to refresh back to episode 22 that's where we discussed The whole scandal, Brittany Griner and her fantastic accomplishments as a basketball player, two-time gold medal Olympian, WNBA champion, college champion, one of the best basketball players of her era, black, lesbian. So certainly like the most high profile American that was jailed abroad. She was detained in Russia for having two cannabis vape cartridges which is a violation of Russian law. But really what she did is she unwittingly became a pawn in Putin's sort of like geopolitical war with the U.S. And Biden and others in the State Department just brokered her release. So she was released last week in a prisoner swap for Victor Bout, who's also known as the Merchant of Death, notorious arms dealer. And well, she's out now. So that's good. There's a couple downsides, I guess, to this is one, Paul Whelan was not freed. He's the Marine that's been jailed in Russia for espionage. Apparently, Biden tried to work out a deal where both Paul and Brittany would be freed in exchange for Victor Bout, but Russia wasn't handling it. And the person that they did wasn't having it. And the person that they did want to exchange, Vadim Krasov, is actually detained in Germany. And Germany didn't want to participate in this swap. And the other sort of criticism is that what Brittany did, having two cartridges of cannabis, Versus what Victor Bout did, you know, being an arms dealer, selling millions of dollars of weapons right. to the <laughs> Middle right. East and Africa, weapons that may have been used to kill Americans. If there's just no comparison between the two harms. And that makes the trade seem unfair. And it makes the, the critics say that could make Biden and America seem weak.
1: Yeah, I've been reading a lot about this on Twitter. Yes, positive is Brittany Griner free. That's great news. We've been talking about that for a while. But yes, the downsides that you mentioned, it seems like the criticism, it being a weak trade, given who the merchant of death is, and the Marine was also not freed, and that, like, I think people can spin it however they want. Some people are saying that, well, you know, Biden pushed on this because it's, you know, it's a good look that they freed a big, you know, well-known name and celebrity. But on the other hand, they did give up this massive arms dealer and it's a tough one. I don't know. I think it's just a win for Brittany here. Like she gets to go home and the rest of it is like, these things are so complicated. I can't even imagine. I mean, if Russia is just like, no, we're not going to give you X. And then do you leave her in jail until you can negotiate further But given there was such a big media eye on this whole thing, and maybe it is that the Biden administration needed that win. So I don't know. I'm happy for her. That's great.
0: The government was even divided about this. The DOJ said the swap was not a good idea because of the disparity between what Victor Belt did and what Brittany Griner did. I'm sympathetic to that argument. I mean, listen, Brittany Griner certainly did not deserve to be detained or sentenced to nine years for having two cartridges of cannabis. like That's a huge shame. And obviously, she's a very talented basketball player. I'm sympathetic to her side. I'm sympathetic to the side that says that Victor Bout, he was sentenced to 25 years. And if his weapons have been used to kill Americans overseas, then it's a very high price to pay. So I don't know that there's an easy answer on this, but she's been detained for almost a year. And she's got to go through the process of sort of reintegrating back into society. Potentially, does she want to play basketball again? Does she get over the emotional and psychological trauma, physical trauma of of being overseas and being detained for a year? I mean, I just, I can't imagine what she's going through and what it's going to be like to reintegrate. But at the same time, Americans traveling overseas, obviously few of them are going to be as high profile as Brittany Griner, but you do have to wonder if what this does is it makes nations that might be hostile to the u.s more likely to try to detain americans to gain leverage over america in terms of negotiations like this which may happen in the future
1: there was something that i read that the trade wasn't such a bad trade given that merchant of death was actually coming up like it wasn't next year or the year after but apparently in the next few years that he was going to be released anyways and so they just essentially just accelerated that process to get her back now, granted, you know, you could read different opinions on these things, but I thought that was an interesting take on on Brittany Griner around the fact that The Merchant of Death had a potential upcoming release in, you know, four to six years, and so they just accelerated the process, which is an interesting take, but I think there's just multiple takes on this. I think bottom line, um, really great for her. That's great news for her to be able to return to her family. But let's take a break, and then Paul will get back, and we'll talk about Avatar 2. Okay, Paul, so Avatar Two, it's the long-awaited sequel to Avatar. It's Avatar Two, The Way of the Water, James Cameron. Obviously, this is a massive, massive movie. It's, we talked about it, you know, two weeks ago, been almost a, I guess a decade in production, thirteen years in, you know, preparation, filming, production, post production. It's coming out. And James Cameron himself said that this is a it – a, it's a really hard feat from like a business perspective because this movie needs to make $2 billion to break even. Cameron is still pushing on the whole like 3D experience, which you and I have talked about previously. Like we don't really watch 3D movies, honestly, besides Avatar. This is a tough one, man. I, I honestly – I love James Cameron. I don't know if I'm going to go watch this movie. I'm going to call BS. You're definitely going to watch this movie. <laughs> Avatar
0: 2, The Way of Water, it is three hours and 10 minutes long, and the early reviews are actually very positive. They had the premiere in London. It was actually very well received. People are saying it's mesmerizing, breathtaking, big, emotional, epic, whatever you want to call it. I'm not one to bet against James Cameron. You know, Terminator, Aliens, Titanic, Avatar. He makes big movies, and he makes expensive movies, but they all sort of perform This one's like 13 years after the first Avatar, which, if I'm being honest, I thought the story was a little, um, the story was average. But the visuals were next level. Incredible. It was immersive. It was 3D. And that's what brought people to theaters. And it didn't actually crush opening weekend. You know, it only made 77 million in opening weekend, but it never, it didn't slow down, right? So it had like an eight-month theatrical run, It only dropped 2% from Weekend 1 to Weekend 2, and it was basically flat, whereas most movies have a significant decline week after week after week. That's what made Avatar 1 the highest grossing film. And so I agree, Mesh. It seems risky to think that Avatar 2 would match that or exceed it, but the movie business needs it, and James Cameron has never disappointed. And so do people care? enough to see it are they going to watch it in 3d i think those are the big questions even if it is a great movie it may not make two billion dollars
1: yeah i think that you're right okay fine fair enough to call bs on me not watching it i would say that the only way i would watch it is to your point about avatar one which is things start coming out and it says you have to go watch this movie it's an incredible 3d experience it's way better than the experience that Avatar One had, and you've never seen anything like it. Then you go to the movies to go watch that, and I will actually put 3D glasses on because honestly, besides the first Avatar, no other movie I've ever seen has been worth watching in 3D. But I will probably wait to just see what the audience response is. Uh, like, I'm not going to go watch it on opening weekend, but you know, to your point, now I'm a, now I'm actually maybe I am a flip flopper because uh, this guy has just taken so many risks with filmmaking, and I think everything from Titanic to Terminator 2 to Avatar 1, it's been a long time since we've seen him back. I really wish he was just doing something else, given that if, what, Avatar 2 does well, we've got a bunch of others ones, I just really want to see him make something else. But, of course, always happy to support Cameron, and uh, I will eventually watch it, but I want to see what the response is.
0: Apparently he had to develop new cameras to shoot this, and he had to develop new cameras to shoot Avatar 1, new motion capture technology, new algorithms, new um, AI in order to just get all the shots they need to get. And he's a perfectionist. So sometimes they would yeah. take hundreds of attempts to get a certain shot or a certain look. And that's why this movie is so expensive. I'm very curious to see how it surpassed Avatar 1. Because I didn't like Avatar 1 as far as the story. I liked it because it was visually stunning. Yeah. This one, presumably, it's going to be more of the same. Like the story, I think the characters have evolved. They have kids now. There's still probably a a war against capitalism, I'm assuming. But, you know, I'm eager to see how they do it. And I think it's a three-hour escape. I remember when I was first, when I was relocated to... Manhattan Beach to work for Marvel at the start of my career that was when Avatar first came out and I was there for a couple months and I remember people like all the buzz people were talking about Avatar all around LA then when I actually moved to LA a couple of years later to work uh, for Marvel Studios kind of full-time I remember we were at the Manhattan Beach Raleigh Studios lot off Rosecrans and Douglas in El Segundo And we didn't have all the space because most Marvel movies were not shot in L.A. A lot of them were shot wherever the tax credits were. So like Atlanta, London, whatever. And Lightstorm ended up taking over the space from us. First, they took a couple stages. Then they took over the whole studio. And Lightstorm is James Cameron's production company. And I remember. So this was like 10 years ago. They started working on Avatar 2. And one day there was an elephant on the lot. And people are like freaking out. They're like, what the hell? Why is there an elephant here? And it was because James Cameron was like testing something out for avatar two. And that was 10 years ago. <laughs> most, most movies are made in like, you know, a year, year and a half, two years. So the fact that he's been working on this thing for a decade, I just can't imagine how good it's going to be in terms of the technical side of it. Like the, the visuals, the technology, the cameras, those things I think are going to be second to none question is the story and whether people care enough to make to put 2 billion dollars into the into the theaters.
1: And I think the narrative could change. I think the narrative could change towards that like, you know, James Cameron makes epic new technological advances in filmmaking, must go see same thing as before, story's okay, but it's again, you know, he's done this before. He did it in Terminator 2 uh when everyone was like, "Holy moly, like this guy has been able to make this character turn into liquid metal and change shapes and that was like back in the early 90s when people couldn't even fathom that type of thing being seen on screen and then obviously with titanic and then avatar one so look i'm very excited to see what the reviews are and what people say about it and you called it right because i probably i'll wait a few weeks but i will go watch it as i think it's good to your point I need three hours to go just like zone out and go into an imaginary world. And what better world than to go into one of James Cameron's?
0: I think Avatar Way of Water comes at a very important time for the theatrical industry. Box office so far this year is at seven and a half billion, which is better than last year, but nowhere near pre-pandemic. And with Black Panther Wakanda Forever, it looks like it's going to end up around half of what Black Panther 1 did in 2018 theaters and studios are hurting for major tentpole releases top gun maverick was the best move of the year maybe avatar 2 can unseat it unlikely because it's probably only going to have two or three weekends in 2022 to to try to cross top gun maverick but who knows maybe it'll kick off 2023 really strong too i think i'm eager to see it story aside i think it'll be visually stunning and i'm looking forward
1: to it awesome paul as usual Thanks for uh, for breaking down all things legal and excited to watch that World Cup and talk about it next week. That's our show for this week, folks. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Find us on Better Call Paul, the podcast on Instagram, at Mesh Likani on Twitter. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera, Marco Siler gonzalez and assistant producer, Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.